Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Lisa Holder can still remember her first pregnancy. She carried her baby for nine months, nearly to the full term, when she began to notice something was wrong. Very, very late in the pregnancy, shortly before my due date, I let my doctors know that I was not, there were problems and that it did not feel right. I was dismissed as a first time young mother and completely ignored the protocols that were supposed to be triggered by the statements that I was making about what was happening at this late stage of pregnancy were not triggered and uh, my child ended up dying during the childbirth. The memory and that experience is still a painful one for Lisa. And she blames a specific reason for the loss of her first child systemic racism. I wasn't really seen as a person of value within the healthcare system. And as such, you know, the worst thing imaginable happened, something that changed the entire trajectory of my life. That trajectory has led Lisa to becoming a nationally renowned lawyer. And today, she's the president of the Equal Justice Society, an organization working to broaden conceptions of discrimination to include unconscious and structural bias. But that trajectory stems not only from Lisa's own experience, but the experience of thousands of Black breathing people in America. Because America has a problem, and that problem is the Black maternal mortality crisis. I'm Cheyenne Daniels, race and politics reporter for The Hill, and this is The Switch Up. Today, we're delving into the maternal mortality crisis that impacts birthing people of color and their babies across our nation. What's causing this crisis and who's most at risk? And is it even possible that there's an end to this deadly epidemic? A note on our terminology. In this episode, I will use the term birthing people to encompass any person who can give birth. Here at The Switch Up, we acknowledge that gender is expansive and multifaceted. Some of the Switch Up's guests may say Black mothers, but we all recognize that not everyone who's able to experience pregnancy identifies as a woman. To understand the Black maternal health crisis, we must go back in time, back to the 19th century, when Black people were still enslaved and a man named James Marion Sims embarked on a journey of gynecological development. But that journey came at the expense of enslaved Black women. Sims, a Southern slaveholder, is known as the father of modern gynecology. But much of what he learned about the science came from brutal experiments on enslaved Black women. Sims invented the vaginal speculum and pioneered a surgical technique to repair vesicovaginal fistula, 
a complication of childbirth in which a tear between the uterus and bladder caused constant pain and urine leakage. But Sims learned about fistulas through what some consider the torture of three black women. He conducted 30 operations on just one woman alone before he finally perfected his method. And these experiments were done without any sort of anesthesia, which shouldn't be surprising. A pervasive thought that still persists today was that Black people do not feel pain. But Sims knew his experiments were painful because he wrote about one response from a woman named Lucy. Lucy's agony was extreme, he wrote, adding that he thought she was going to die. It took Lucy two or three months to recover entirely from the effects of the operation. Today, the pain that Black patients face is often still dismissed. They are also significantly less likely to be prescribed pain medication and generally receive lower doses of it when they are treated. I am fortunate enough that I live in the DMV area, and that's the district, uh, that's the district, Maryland and Virginia, and not Department of Motor Vehicles, but um, living in the DMV area. So I have access to, and had access to health care and was able to go for the daily visits. That's Stacey Broadway, Senior Vice President for Public Policy and Government Affairs at March of Dimes. When Stacey was pregnant with her daughter, she had her pain dismissed. See, Stacy wanted to have a vaginal delivery, but her doctor pushed her to have a C-section, and the aftermath saw Stacy in excruciating pain and unable to be with her newborn baby for days. I go in, I'm able to tell my doctor, while I'm not ne- necessarily in favor of doing a C-section, I'm pushed towards a C-section. Then after this, I come out, I give birth to my daughter. I suffer postpartum depression. I also try to tell my doctor when we're trying to remove the staples or the stitches that there's this pain and I'm not sure what it is. And she says to me, and I quote, we can do this now because you're acting like the baby. Well, long and the short of the story, I let her remove the staples. I leave and four hours later, they have to rush me to the hospital because where they've removed the sutures um, or staples, the body opens up and there is a wound that takes place and my blood pressure shoots extremely high. So then we start talking about issues that face Black women, which is hypertension. Did I have hypertension um, before my pregnancy, pre-hypertension? No, I did not. Very healthy individual, probably a few pounds, a little bit overweight. But in terms of when we talk about hypertension that impacts uh, various groups of individuals, such as Black women, Hispanic women, and Native Americans. So I faced those things. Um, Had to be put in the hospital and stay away from my child for an additional three days. It's sad, but in some ways, Stacy and her baby are both lucky to be alive. Because their symptoms are often dismissed, Black birthing people are more likely to experience life-threatening conditions like preeclampsia, postpartum hemorrhaging, and blood clots. And they face increased pregnancy-related complications like preterm birth and low birth weight. As a result of it all, Black birthing people are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than white people. And these disparities worsened during the COVID-19 pandemic. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found that the maternal mortality rate for Black people increased by 26% since the start of the pandemic. And 84% of pregnancy-related deaths, the CDC found, are preventable. These uh, injustices, they're not light injustices. 
They are life-changing, abominable injustices that we are talking about. That's my personal experience. My personal experience is replicated thousands and thousands of times over and over again. In recent weeks, the crisis has gotten renewed attention amid growing concerns over the disparities. Despite this, many people, even at the highest level of government, are emphasizing that this is not a new issue. Earlier in 2023, during Black Maternal Health Week, Vice President Kamala Harris held a roundtable where she listened to advocates, mothers, and experts on the crisis. And make no mistake, Black women in our country are facing a maternal health crisis. Black women are two to three times more likely to die in connection with childbirth than other women. And it is important to note that Native women are 2.3 times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than white women. We know the primary reasons why. Systemic racial inequities and implicit bias. And the consequences are both very real. Many of the women in this room have experienced them firsthand. And as the ambassador said, we will hear their stories, which they speak with great courage, given the pain that they have experienced. And over the year, years, I've heard many stories, stories of women who are experiencing postpartum depression only to be dismissed, stories of women telling their doctors they were experiencing pain only to be ignored, stories of women who could not hold their newborn baby because that child had to be on life support or receive a blood transfusion after blood transfusion after blood transfusion. Black women deserve to be heard. Their voices deserve to be respected. And like all people, they must be treated with dignity. Harris has been an ardent advocate for supporting maternal health since her time as a senator. But as she said, the racial disparities in maternal health are expansive. But what clearly stands out is that the crisis transcends socioeconomic status meaning that a black person with a college education could still face worse health outcomes than a white person without a high school diploma. Last year, Representative Lauren Underwood, a Democrat from Illinois, shared with The Hill that her friend, Dr. Shalon Irving, died just weeks after giving birth to her daughter. She had a dual doctorate in sociology and gerontology. We had met at, in the Masters of Public Health program. After we graduated, she went on to serve at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the United States Public Health Service Commission Corps. And I remember the CDC director was at her funeral and her remarks just like stunned, like how could this happen? That's not to say there aren't any economic barriers exacerbating the racial disparities in the crisis, though. Researchers at Stanford University found that death rates among low-income mothers are three times higher than wealthy mothers. But this still goes back to systemic racism. Black Americans are more likely to be uninsured than their white counterparts and have less wealth and income, affecting their ability to afford high-quality care both during and after pregnancy. But those who are insured could still face difficulties. While 43% of births are financed by Medicaid, the government assistance program is only required to provide coverage for 60 days after the pregnancy, despite most deaths occurring up to a full year after delivery. There are some in Congress, like Underwood, who are working to address these disparities. But many Americans are unaware of the crisis facing Black birthing people. When I came to Congress, I had no idea that it was even an issue, period, for any woman or how the United States ranked. That's Representative Robin Kelly, another Democrat from Illinois. 
she's become one of the leading voices in Congress on the maternal health crisis, and specifically the disparities Black people face. It was her legislation, the Mamas Act, that expanded Medicaid coverage from up to 60 days postpartum to a full year. It was a constituent that called me and she shared the story of Judge Hatchett, who comes on TV, about her daughter-in-law and her son and that her daughter-in-law died after giving birth. And it was so tragic. The story, there was a work order that was done, but they didn't do it for hours and hours and hours and hours. And when they finally did it, they rushed her right to the operating room. And when they opened her up, she died. And so... Um, uh, she has two sons. They, um, her baby was born, and so that's how I found out. And then we just hit the ground running. We had a big forum. I think it was December of that year. I can't even remember the year now, but it's been a while ago, maybe seven years ago or six. And we had a big forum, and so many people came in D.C. So that's really that's what started me on my journey. Then I started hearing story after story, and even some people I know, they didn't die, but it went into a coma or just different things like that. I keep saying, because of what I do, people know, but then people don't know, and they don't realize uh, that Black women, depending on where you are, two to one, three to one, someplace eight to one, Illinois six to one, more likely to die than their white counterparts. Kelly touches on another important subject that where someone lives could affect whether they come out of their pregnancy alive. I grew up in rural America. I grew up in rural South Carolina. And you sometimes would have to travel um, 45 to 50 miles just to be able to get in to see a to obstetrician, um, an OBGYN, a nurse practitioner, anyone that could help you make sure that you're going through and having a healthy baby. More than 2.2 million people of childbearing age live in maternity care deserts, or areas where there's a lack of resources, such as hospitals or birth centers offering obstetric care. In 2020, 16% of Black babies were born in areas with limited or no access to maternity care services. And that's one of the saddest parts of the crisis, because newborns aren't always spared. Black infants are two times more likely to die within their first year than white infants. It's access, it's location. It is um, making sure that we're able to take care of the mom as she's going through um, the pregnancy journey. It is an increase of these premature births, also babies that deaths that are preventable deaths. It's a lot relying on, it's on society, it's on being able to, to set the parameters and look at where we are. Reasons for the newborn disparities aren't all that different from the disparities behind maternal mortality rates. But in 2020, Black mothers were twice as likely to receive late or no prenatal care than white mothers. Maternal mortality and morbidity happens to white women too, but not at the same rate. But no, I mean, the history of many things shows us that, you know, if it happened to white women, we would have, you know, addressed this sooner and uh, than we have now. So, and also um, I think things would have been retooled faster, or training would be different. And that's what needs to happen now that uh, doctors, but I would even say anyone, a pregnant woman touches, you know, there's training needed, whether it's, you know, compassion skills, empathy, how to listen, 
uh, cultural competency. That's not my favorite word, but you know what I mean. And and it's not just a one-time thing. Um, I, I just think that training and education need to be different. And then it's also goes to the gender thing that women still aren't listened to like men and women of color, black women aren't listened to like other people. Facts are facts and the numbers don't lie. And we know that in a city like San Francisco, the infant mortality rate for African-American infants is six times that of infants of any other race. We know that African-American newborn babies across America are three times more likely to die if they are delivered by a white doctor. We do not see the converse when white newborns are delivered by BIPOC doctors. Doctors are heroes. We saw that during uh, COVID. But the fact is that they are also human and Racism is something that courses through the lifeblood of this nation and implicit bias is always present. And so we do have a, a major problem of implicit bias in our healthcare system that drives these abominable statistics. We're dealing with systemic and institutional biases, right? But we are also dealing with a narrative, a narrative, a, an anti-Black narrative that has been in existence for hundreds of years that uh, is a driver of that continues to be a driver of both implicit and explicit bias, right? So this notion that Black people are worth less is something that is very much embedded in the way that we think, because that's just a message that we're constantly getting through every inter interaction that we have within our culture from the time that we're born to the time that we die, right? And so that is why uh, implicit bias is so uh, prevalent and has such an impact on our day-to-day decision-making, um, especially rapid-fire decision-making where you don't have have a, time, uh, a lot of time to assess uh, your biases and they are getting triggered uh, because of stress. So we, we have to make both systemic changes and we also have to, you know, be the change that we want to see, right? We have to change ourselves and the way that we think and, and we have to do a lot of work about shifting the narrative on Blackness, shifting the narrative on Black femininity, the narrative that we have been dealing with, the status quo narrative, what Toni Morrison denominated the master narrative, what Martin Luther King denominated the lie when it comes to Black women. That narrative is that Black women are less valuable. Black women's bodies exist for punishment. And again, those are narratives that emanate all the way back. They're derivative of slave narratives. They have slightly morphed. It is, it is impolitic to say that someone is inferior. And so now it has morphed to, oh, this person is a threat. Oh, uh, this person is not competent. Uh, you know, oh, this person is, is disrespectful because you can no longer say that that person is inferior, right? Because it's because it is, it's impolitic. But those same narratives, those same threads that have debased and destabilized uh, Black women for generations are still alive and strong and having an impact on outcomes within our healthcare system and every other system, frankly. The bottom line is that we need systemic institutional changes 
We need narrative change. We need to undergo a process where we are transforming the American psyche as it relates to race. And uh, we also need to take steps to develop our, our consciousness personally and in terms of our interpersonal interactions. Lisa and her team with the Equal Justice Society have already begun to take those steps. Our mission is to transform the nation's consciousness on race through law, social science, and the arts. So given the nature of my work, um, especially the critical reliance on social science in terms of the cases that I brought when I was in private practice and in the litigation and, uh, and advocacy work that we do at EJS, we really do center social science. In our healthcare system, Black women are persona non grata and uh, really, frankly, quite in danger in our healthcare system because of stereotypes about Black women, because of uh, explicit and implicit biases um, that really actually emanate from stereotypes about Black women and their value in our society that began during slavery, uh, were replicated during the Jim Crow segregation era and continue in the post-civil rights era and lead to the abominable statistic on Black women's health that we see today. Lisa and the EJS team aren't alone. March of Dimes has also been working with members of Congress like Underwood and Kelly to help stop this crisis. Recently, March of Dimes celebrated the House's passage of the Preemie Reauthorization Act, which expands research to help reduce preterm birth and its consequences. But Stacy said the organization is now working closely with their partners on Capitol Hill to pass funding for doulas and midwives. We're working in that space because we believe that having a doula or a midwife to be able to help a family, help a mom, um, help a birthing person go through their pregnancy, being able to be there, to be the advocate, to explain to them um, what is expected, what you're going to experience, being able to have someone outside of yourself when you say, I'm not sure that I want to have a C-section. Or these are the things that my body is telling me, that I'm having um, these pains, I'm having these terrible headaches. You having someone who's a doula that can help you that's there, having a midwife, it changes your whole overall birthing experience. Along with Kelly and Underwood, other leading members of the Black Maternal Health Caucus in both the Senate and the House have introduced resolutions in the last year hoping to tackle the crisis. In April, Underwood, along with Representative Alma Adams and Senator Cory Booker, introduced legislation to nationally recognize Black Maternal Health Week. Since 2020, the Black Maternal Health Caucus has worked to pass the Momnibus, a package of legislation to address gaps in policy solutions to end the maternal health crisis. Last Congress, the first bill from the package was passed. And in 2023, Kelly and Illinois Senator Dick Durbin introduced the Care for Moms Act, which would help address some of the most pressing issues, including extending Medicaid coverage for postpartum mothers in all 50 states and establishing grants for rural obstetric mobile units. 
really speaking to people with the experience around it and speaking to healthcare professionals, hearing stories. And we started off with the Mamas Act and we passed a lot of that. Like um, I give our office full credit for the postpartum period uh, expanding in uh, almost 40 states or 40 states now from the postpartum period of coverage by Medicaid from 60 days and now it's a full year. So that will definitely save a lot of lives. So when you get sick in that period of time, you'll have coverage and you can go to the doctor is not just it happens to you, you know, when you give birth that day, it can happen before that day or up to a year after. But it's working with a lot of professionals that we came up with what's needed. But even with the renewed attention the nation is seeing, there's no doubt the fight isn't even close to ending. That's because there's a whole other group of our population fighting for maternal care, incarcerated women. That's next time on The Switch Up. I'm Cheyenne Daniels, race and politics reporter for The Hill. And from all of us at The Hill, thanks for listening to this episode of The Switch Up. We'll have more episodes delving into the intersection of race and politics soon. So be sure to follow The Hill at T-H-E-H-I-L-L on all social media for future updates, including episode drops and articles. And you can watch my full interviews with all of our guests on YouTube. The Switch Up was created and written by me. Script editing for this episode was done by Steph Thomas. Audio production by Christian Carter. Our booking producers are Casey Brady and Tia Shepard. <laughs>